This is Jonah Berger, author of Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on The Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer in 2016. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, we're joined by Jonah Berger, and we're going to talk about his book, Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. Jonah Berger is a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He's published dozens of articles in top-tier academic journals, and popular accounts of his work have appeared in places like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Science, Harvard Business Review, Wired, Business Week, Fast Company, and now the Marketing Book Podcast. Jonah has been recognized with awards for both scholarship and teaching, including being named Wharton's Iron Prof in recognition of awesome faculty research. He earned his PhD from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Dr. Berger, congratulations on Invisible Influence, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So I should disclose there's this phenomenon with my show, the Marketing Book Podcast, where uh, at this point, over 10% of the authors have degrees from Stanford. <laughs> so I think you're like the eighth one so far. So there's clearly something in the alumni magazine urging all alumni to write books. Uh, th- th- either that or something in the water, one or the other. <laughs> right, right, right. So you say that this book is about the simple, subtle, and often surprising ways that others affect our behavior. And I found the book to be really fascinating, but honestly, it didn't apply to me. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I should explain the joke I'm telling you. In other words, yeah, this is all great, but but I'm not influenced by by others. On on page uh, 17, you said, throughout the book, we'll discuss how social influence affects people in ways you might never have thought possible. It's tempting to read such research and assume that it doesn't apply to us. Sure, other people might follow the herd, but not me. So anyway, yeah, I read that, and I, I was pretty much busted from the very beginning. Yes, I am, <laughs> I am perfectly capable of being influenced by other people. But why is it that people don't think sh- social influence affects them? You know, it's interesting. When we think about how we make decisions, we assume they're driven by us, our personal likes and dislikes, our preferences, uh, our aspirations, our hopes and dreams. Um, but we're actually quite wrong. Other people often have a huge impact uh, on what we do, from simple decisions we make, like what breakfast cereal to buy, to more important ones, like who to vote for and, and what careers to pursue. And, and part of the reason we're unaware of this social influence is twofold. First, uh, you know, influence, we tend to think of it as not a good thing. Uh, you know, when we were kids, our parents might have said, well, if Timmy jumps off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge also? And so we see imitation following others as, as a bad thing. And so if it's bad, we don't want to see ourselves as doing it. That's definitely true. But it's actually more complicated than that, because even if we look at positive things, cases where influence is a good thing, so wearing the right clothes to a formal event or other uh, sorts of good examples of influence, you know, having the right table manners at a, a dinner that you're unfamiliar with, we still don't think we're, we're influenced. And, and part of the reason is because 
we don't see influence happening. Think about the last pair of shoes you bought, for example. You say, oh, I bought them because I like their color. I like the way they fit. We don't realize that the mere fact we saw a bunch of people wearing similar shoes in the weeks or months before might have affected us. And so we often don't realize influence occurs because we're unaware of its effect on us. It happens non-consciously or or subconsciously, and so we don't think it matters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, hence the title of the book, (laughs) Invisible Influence. There are so many examples in the book where you show how this works, and and why, again, like you just mentioned, why it's a little more complicated than you think. Sometimes it can go one or two ways, um, but the one that really got me to uh, grasp this this concept was the experiment that I think it was Matthew Salganic at Princeton did, where people evaluated the different types of music. Can you explain that? Sure. Uh, so. One thing we're interested in, and, and I and others are interested in, is why some things become popular. Uh, so, you know, why do certain songs become hits? Why do movies become blockbusters? Why do food like Chobani catch on while other things uh, don't? Uh, and so uh, one answer is often, well, they're just better than the rest. So really good things are successful. Not so good things are, are not as successful. But if you actually look, there are lots of examples where people who should be experts can't tell the difference between what is successful and what isn't. Uh, later on. Take J.K. Rowling, for example, the author of Harry Potter. Uh, you know, we would say, oh, Harry Potter, of course it's a big hit. That's just because it's a better book. Well, she got turned down by dozens of publishers before she actually found one that was willing to publish uh, her work. Walt Disney was said that uh, he's a terrible illustrator and he'd never get a job. Lots of people that end up being hugely successful were told that they wouldn't necessarily make it. And so if even the best folks in industry, the experts, can't tell the difference between hits and failures, why do some things win out and and others don't? Uh, And so Salganic did some really neat research on this. He had people listen to songs, a set of songs, and they could download whichever ones they liked. So imagine going to a website, there's a list of songs, pick one and download it, or don't pick it and download it, whatever you like. Uh, And he looked at what people ended up picking or choosing, uh, and he found, sure enough, some songs did really well and other songs did not as well. That makes sense. Uh, The ones that did well did exponentially better than the ones that didn't do so well. That makes sense. What was interesting is he ran multiple worlds, multiple social influence worlds. So uh, in some of these situations, people could actually see what other people liked before them. So imagine going on a website just like Amazon said, this many people reviewed this book or this many people liked this particular thing. Imagine you get a sense of how many other people like the song that you downloaded, how many other people downloaded it. He found that sure enough, people tended to follow others. But in different cases, people follow different others. So imagine two different worlds. Uh, in one set, the first person likes jazz music, and the other set, the first person likes hip-hop. Well, they may download the songs they like, and the people that follow them end up following them and downloading similar songs. But eventually, the worlds go in completely different directions, even though they could have gone in just the same direction. The mere fact that we follow others can lead us to completely different outcomes than we might happen otherwise. And this happens often in meetings. Right? The first person who talks in a meeting has a big impact on what the group ends up deciding. Is it because the first person is much more influential than the rest? No, it's just because the first person says something. People tend to agree with people that came before them. And so the group goes left when it just as easily could have gone right. And so others not only affect our behavior, but they have a big effect on the outcomes that groups and populations end up achieving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Then it makes me wonder, you know, how how did Nickelback become so popular? But I guess that's a topic for another podcast. You talk in the book about how familiarity leads to preference, which I think is uh, has enormous implications for the marketing and the sales folks. Can you explain this phenomenon and how people aren't really aware of that? 
I'll, I'll explain this phenomenon in, in terms of an experiment that was done. So uh, imagine you're a student uh, at, a, at a college. Uh, I think it's Pittsburgh, uh, University of Pittsburgh, where this study was done. Uh, imagine you're a student in a class. And at the end of the class, the professor says, hey, can you help me out with some research? And you say, sure. He brings you to a room. He shows you four pictures uh, of different women. So one picture of each woman. And he asks you to rate how attractive you find each of the women. Sounds easy enough. Uh, and obviously, people have different preferences. Uh, some uh, men prefer blondes. Others prefer brunettes. Uh, in the case of women, you know, some women prefer their men tall, dark, and handsome. Uh, others may prefer their men uh, short, pale, and not so handsome. Well, they good say <laughs> the men and women say that those are their preferences, but yes, yes. Uh, but in this particular case, they did something interesting. Uh, these four pictures that the folks saw weren't just anybody. They were actually people that had been in the class during that semester. But interestingly, the professor manipulated the number of times each of those people had come to class. So some person came to class zero times, one person came to class five times, one person came to class 10, and one person came 15. And you would say, well, why does that matter, right? Just because someone came to class more often shouldn't affect how people see them. But it did. Actually, people found the others that came to class more often to be more attractive. The woman that came to class 15 times was seen as more attractive than the person that came 10, which is more than five, which is more than zero. And what this study shows and dozens of other studies in the same area is exposure leads to liking. The mere fact we've seen something and the more frequently you see that thing, the more we end up liking that thing. So in advertising context, for example, why do we see the same ads over and over again? Well, part of it is companies know that, well, if I show you an ad a couple times, you'll like it more than if you just saw it once. The mere fact that that product or service is more familiar increases our liking and increases our likelihood to purchase. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You talk in the book about the more something matters to us, the more unique we assume it is. Why is that? Yeah, and what I, I think is really interesting about the book, and, and you hinted at this a little bit earlier, when we think about influence, we tend to think about influence as a certain flavor of influence, imitation, doing the same thing as others. But actually, social influence is kind of like a magnet. Just like a magnet can attract, it can also repel. Social influence can lead us to do the same thing as others, but it can also lead to do something completely different, actually avoiding something that, that others are doing. So it turns out that siblings, for example, tend to focus on different areas. Uh, one sibling may focus on being a student, whereas another focuses on being an athlete. One may be the funny one and someone else is the serious one. We not only imitate others, but we differentiate from the other people around us. Someone at the dinner table, for example, we're going out to dinner with a group of people, someone else orders the steak we were thinking of getting, we may end up getting a hamburger or a pizza instead because we don't want to order the same thing. And so we differentiate as well as do the same thing. And this is particularly important in American contexts where we want to be unique, we want to see ourselves as, as different. And so as you were alluding to, the more important something is to us, the more unique we assume it is. We want to see ourselves as different, so we focus on ways we're different from others rather than ways we're the same. But can you also explain the issue of how some people actually prefer conformity versus being unique? Yeah, so uh, as I talk about it in the book, um, it's not one or the other. It's not we always want to be the same and we always want to be different. Um, there are certain situations where we want to be more similar and others where we want to be more different. And there are even situations where we blend similarity and, and difference at the same time. Um, but it, as you mentioned, there are some individuals that prefer more or less similarity. There's something called the need for uniqueness. Some of us have a higher need for uniqueness. Others of us have a low need for uniqueness. And the higher our need to be different or our need to stand out, the more likely you are to pick unique products or to do things that are different from others. Jumping ahead, please explain why Gucci's competitors send Gucci handbags to Snooki 
from Jersey Shore. <laughs> this is a, a funny story, uh, and, and hopefully your listeners remember Snooky. But she was one of the the I couldn't call an actor. I guess it, she's a person from the Jersey Shore. Uh, she was the short one that sort of had a fake tan all the time uh, and talked a, a lot of trash and didn't say the most intelligent things. Uh, an interesting story. Uh, one day she actually got a, a Gucci handbag in the mail. Uh, and all of us would probably be quite happy to get Gucci handbags uh, in the mail entirely for free. She was, of course, overjoyed. Uh, and why would someone send her a Gucci handbag? Well, the classic reason is product placement, right? Uh, someone like Snooky often appears in People magazine or on the cover of In Touch. Uh, and Gucci thinks, well, if we send her a Gucci handbag, she'll be more likely to use it. People will see her using it, and the bag will become more popular. There's only one wrinkle uh, to this story. It wasn't Gucci who sent uh, Snooky a Gucci handbag. It was actually one of their competitors. So why would a competing brand actually send her a, a Gucci handbag? And it turns out it's not just her. There was another person from the Jersey Shore. You might remember uh, Mike, the situation, Sorrentino. He was the guy with the uh, fantastic abs. Oh, right, uh, right. And, yeah, and uh, Abercrombie & Fitch actually sent him a letter uh, in regards to wearing their clothes, offering to pay him money. But they weren't offering to pay him money to wear their clothes. They were actually offering to pay him money not to wear their clothes. <laughs> it's hilarious. And so why would Gucci, you know, why would Gucci's competitor send someone a Gucci handbag? Why would Abercrombie and Fitch pay someone not to wear their clothes? And the idea, very simply, is it's not just about what a brand is. It's what a brand means. What does it communicate to wear a brand? And the competitor said, well, look, if Snooki's using a Gucci handbag, maybe other folks won't want to use a Gucci handbag anymore because they don't want to look like Snooki. Robert Crabbe and Fitch was worried, well, if the situation's wearing our clothes, maybe our target market, the folks who want to wear Abercrombie, will say, if he's doing it, we don't want to. And so, again, that idea of like attracting as well as repelling, sometimes social influence leads us to do the opposite of things as others. Sometimes we avoid things because we don't want to be associated with the people who are doing it. Mm -hmm. Can you give some examples of uh, marketers who seem to understand or have demonstrated how to use social influence effectively? There's one section in the book where I talk about how to blend similarity and difference, how to be what's called optimally distinct. Uh, and we tend to think it's all about being different. Uh, you know, uh, everyone says, oh, be different, uh, think different, behave differently from everybody else. It's sort of an American motto. Uh, you know, if you go to Burger King, they tell you, you can have it your way. And we laud companies like Apple. And the notion that Apple succeeded was they were different from everybody else. Uh, but what's interesting is you take a closer look, difference doesn't always lead to success. Apple actually had lots of products and services that didn't do so well, that failed. Uh, and there are lots of different companies that ended up not being successful at all. Difference isn't really the, the key to success. What is? And it turns out it's not about being different. It's about being optimally distinct. It's about being similar but different uh, at the same time. So take Chobani, for example, a brand that's been hugely successful recently. They essentially you know, invented uh, the Greek yogurt category in the U.S., it's not that they were different. Uh, Chobani actually wasn't the first Greek yogurt company in the United States. Uh, Faye was. Faye is actually the most popular brand uh, in Greece. Came to U.S. first. Was around for almost a decade before Chobani came in. But Faye, the way they marketed their product, was very different from everything else. It was Greek yogurt, something people hadn't heard of before. It was often sold in large containers rather than small individual ones. And it was often sold in a plain rather than flavored package. Or if there was flavors, it was a flavor you had to mix into your yogurt. It was quite different from the way that American consumers were used to behaving already. And as a result, it didn't catch on. Chobani came along later, and they weren't so different from everybody else. They basically offered Greek yogurt, but in a form factor that Americans were used to. 
a single serve mixed with fruit already. Just it was Greek yogurt rather than regular yogurt. And Chobani has been so successful because it makes similarity and difference at the same time. Rather than just being different, they figured out a way to be optimally distinct. And so importantly, when you're pitching a product or you're thinking about launching a new product, it's not just about being different from everybody else. It's how can you cloak that difference in a skin of similarity so it seems more familiar and so people like it more. Like, can you explain uh, how the, the TiVo folks did it? They did a lot of things that weren't necessary or, or how the, the earliest uh, horseless carriages actually had horses on the front of them. Yeah, the horseless carriage is an interesting example. So, you know, when we forget now today, we all drive cars, but when cars first came around, they were radically different from from what people were expecting. The automobile, not what we think about today as a car, but essentially a, a horseless carriage, um, the, a, a carriage that could motor on itself. It was automated by itself. People were scared. They, you know, thought it was the devil's work if they saw one of these things driving through the countryside. And there were horses a lot of accidents were, too, weren't there? Well, there were a huge number of accidents. Horses were scared. They couldn't figure out what these things were. And so people were really worried about it. And so one clever inventor actually came up with a solution. He called it the horsey horseless. And again, rather than being different, he said, well, what can I do to make the different more similar? So he took a regular automobile in that case, and he put a fake horse head on the front. Literally a thing on the front of the, the car and the automobile, the horseless carriage that looked like a horse. And so now when this thing pulled up at a stoplight and a, a horse looked over, it would see something that looked like itself. People could see something that looked like what they were used to. And you might say, well, that's silly, right? Why would anyone be more comfortable just because it has a horse head on the front? But what's great about that example and what TiVo and Chobani and many others have done is they figured out how to take something different and make people more likely to adopt it by making it more similar or more familiar. Mm -hmm. It's not about being different. It's about being similar and different at the same time. So the TiVo, they, they tried to make it look a lot like a, a VCR, at least in the beginning. Yeah, and, and you know, there's no reason TiVo needs to look like a VCR. Right? TiVo is a digital video recorder. There's no actual tape that runs through the device. TiVo could have been shaped like anything. It could have been spherical. It could have been trapezoidal. Uh, it could have been uh, a rectangle that stood up on its small end. But TiVo made itself look like a VCR because they knew that's what people were comfortable with. They knew that people weren't ready necessarily to take control of their viewing experience, but they were used to a VCR. They were used to how they could record a show they liked on their VCR, and so TiVo mimicked that. They said, that's a technology we're building, a newer, better version of that, to help people introduce it, to help people feel more comfortable with it. Let's start it with something or a form factor that feels more familiar, and then once we've gotten that familiarity, then let's talk about difference. Mm -hmm. Are there any examples of marketers that just seem to get it wrong all the time as it relates to social influence, where they they think they get it, but they're not, they're oversimplifying it. Yeah. Again, I would just say, you know, we don't need to be so different. You know, in, in American culture, we laud the, the different individual. We think that being original is the way to success. And that's just not right. You know, we look at Steve Jobs and we say, oh, Steve Jobs did whatever he wanted. He was so original and so different. You know, Apple wasn't the first person to come up with the computer. They weren't the first person to come out with a personal digital assistant. Many of these examples of successful companies were actually second movers or third movers or fourth movers. There's not a first mover advantage. It's often better to be later or figure out how to frame difference and similarity. And so that's really what ends up being important at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So just a closing quote from the book. By gaining insight into how social influence works, we can put it to work improving our own lives and the lives of others. Influence is a tool like any other. If we understand it, we don't have to stand passively by and just watch it happen. We can use it. We can design environments, shape situations, and build programs that harness the power of social influence to make the world a better place. 
Jonah, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Recognize the power of influence in the world. Have a better eye to see influence in the world around you. And by understanding the science, know how you can use that influence to help yourself live a, live a happier and healthier life. If we understand how influence works, we can make better decisions and make better group decisions. We can be more influential. We can get our products and ideas to catch on. It's a powerful tool. We just need to know and understand how to use it. Mm -hmm. And it seems that if people just understand how pervasive and how strong it is, just acknowledge that. Uh, that might be the hardest part, you know, instead of people who might be uh, like I was joking at the beginning of the uh, interview uh, saying, oh, no, people aren't influenced by those kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Being aware is the first place to start. Yeah. So what books have inspired your work and career? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I have a number of, of favorites. So uh, everything from books we all know and love, like Made the Stick and, and Predictably Irrational, uh, Charles Duhigg's uh, book, Power of Habit, Cialdini's book, Influence, but also some books we may be less familiar with. So there's an old book called The Diffusion of Innovations, which is sort of the, an early work in sociology on understanding why some innovations succeed and others fail. That's a, an old favorite of mine. Uh, there's a book called A Matter of Taste, which is all about baby names. Uh, and how we can understand social dynamics and why things become popular by by understanding baby names. So lots of books have had a, a very important impact on me and the way I see the world. And we'll make sure to link all those up at the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Uh, you know, a, a friend of mine, uh, Kurt Gray, just came out with a book called The Mind Club, which I think is uh, a really powerful way to understand our minds uh, and, and how they work. Um, uh, so that's a, a recent favorite of, of mine I've looked at. Um, and I've also been reading a, a not-so-recent book uh, by a woman named Sarah Thornton, uh, who studies art markets uh, and the dynamics of art markets. And, and I think as a marketer, or as anyone in the world, it's good to read in your area of expertise, but it's also good to have some influences outside that area of expertise. I often get my best ideas not by reading just marketing books, but by reading broader psychology books or sociology books or anthropology books. And so I think by reading some things outside our comfort zone, we become deeper and, and richer individuals. Absolutely. Absolutely. How best can listeners learn more about you and your book? So the best place to find me is, is my website. Uh, that's just Jonah, J-O-N-A-H, uh, Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Um, the book is there. Uh, there's a bunch of information about me as well as the book. And there's also a whole bunch of free resources that your listeners can download. So uh, there's a worksheet, for example, on how to use these tips to be more influential, a worksheet on how to use them to have more effect in motivating yourself and others, and even one to help make better group decisions. So a bunch of free resources there. Uh, you can also find me at, at Twitter, uh, at J1Burger. Great. The name of the book is Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. The author is Jonah Berger. Jonah, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. And that closes the book on episode 76 of the Marketing Book Podcast. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for links to all the things we talked about in this interview and access to free marketing guides from my agency. And while there, make sure to sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Hey, I'd love to hear from you. It really makes my day when a listener reaches out to me with a suggestion or a book recommendation. 
Or if I can help point you to the right book or other marketing resource, please let me know if I can help. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Or heck, just tweet me up using hashtag marketingbook. I'd love to hear from you. And please join us next time as we talk with David Spark about his book, Three Feet from Seven Figures, one-on-one engagement techniques to qualify more leads at trade shows. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Podcast.